You good? Yep. Uh, kids and youth are dismissed to the back. Good morning, everyone. Man, y'all really do be scaring me. Good morning, everyone. There you go. Thank you. Whew. I, I'm glad I don't have a fear for public speaking because I feel like that would terrify someone who has a fear. You know, it's like, I think the room is here and then no one says anything. Um, but good morning. This week we're jumping back into our sermon series focusing on the parables of Jesus. Um, again, as we're looking at these everyday stories with kingdom meanings, we've been highlighting the fact that Jesus teaches, you know, not just to give us a good teaching, right? Or not just to be like, ah, oh, this is a decent thing to think about. But Jesus teaches to try to transform us. Like that's the whole purpose of Jesus' thinking, meaning that like we as human beings living in our world are going to see things a certain way, are going to interact a certain way with one another, and God's going to want to elevate that. So when he's teaching, he wants to transform how we think about God, ourselves, our life, the world, the kingdom. And how he does this is taking these familiar things, right? For us, it's familiar stories, but you have to remember that these stories are now thousands of years old. But for the audience, these were things that, and people that, and understandings they had, and he would start with that and then built on it. And that's why even for us thousands of years later, these parables serve as both, uh, again, a, a mirror that helps us see where we stand before God or how God sees us, but then also as a window that helps us out and see into the world. Now, we, we started a series looking at the, the parable of the mustard seed. And in that parable, we talked about the kingdom itself. We said the kingdom of God is something small that grows big, right? Something obscure that goes to glory. Uh, a little seed that grows to a tree where the birds of the world can come, meaning that you know, God starts small. His plan is always for the world. And his plan is that everyone might fit in, those who believe. Then we move down and say, if that's what the kingdom as a whole is like, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks, uh, well, what are the characteristics of the kingdom? You know, we said one of them is, is forgiveness, right? When Peter comes to Jesus and says, you know, how many times should I forgive? You know, seven, you know, like my culture tells me three, so I'm going to double and add an extra one. And Jesus, I like, know, 70 times seven. Or if you want a better one, just forever. You always are to forgive because you need to forgive because God's forgiven you. And then last week we talked about faithfulness, right? And, and, and then the message in that parable of the, the faithful servant was like, we need to be faithful as God is faithful. So as we look at the, the fundamental characteristics of the kingdom, it might be small and go big. It might be obscure and end in glory. It might be a seed that grows to a tree that has room for everyone. But one of the ways we expand the kingdom, the job that we're supposed to do is to be forgiving, is to be faithful, but then this day, we're going to talk about another one that I think we overlook in our Christian faith, in our walk, and that's it's to be a friend. Friendship seems to not only matter in our lives, but it matters in the kingdom. So in this parable, the parable of the friend of night, we're going to look at what does friendship look like? And what does it have to do in the kingdom? I know you don't do this, but I do this, right? If you had to rank your top five presents you've ever gotten, right? You've probably never done this. This is the stuff I do, right? You rank your top five presents. So I did that this week. Number one is Jesus, right? When I say that, I feel like an athlete. You know, when they're interviewing an the athlete after the game, it's just like, how do you feel about your great performance? I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You throw one of those up, right? So it feels a little awkward, but it is. The, the, the best gift I've ever received is Jesus, right? He not only saved my soul, but he saved my life. He not only gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he gave me the gift of you, the church. He gave me the history, the theology of the church, the people of the church. Jesus is the number one gift, right? So you have Jesus. Then you have a big drop. Sorry, Shell. But it's a big drop. And he got the gift number two, which is my wife, right? The love of my life, my best friend, my partner, the one I get to build life with, the one who makes me better, the one who inspires my faith, the one who is serving the kingdom in her walk in a way that's transforming not only my life or our family's life, but even people and lives in the city, right? I love her with all my life. She's number two. 
Number three is a little tricky because, you know, we're American. We want to go three, four. So I don't rank my children. I rank my gifts, not my children. So it's tied for third, right? It's Harper and Kennedy, our two daughters, who are lights of my life, right? Who have taught me, again, what does love look like? What does trust look like? What, what does love look like in the sense of just belonging? You know, my, 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 my five-year-old is, is, is like she can't sleep without touching me, which is really, really cute but also really, really uncomfortable, you know? Because it's just like, I wake up in the middle of the night and she leaves her room and her foot somehow ends up on the side of my head, you know? Or, or, or my, my eight-year-old Harper, it's, it's fun to see her grow and enhance and, and just the way she's a sponge, right? So these are, are lights of my life. But the fifth present is a little bit different. Back when I was in college, one of my nearest and dearest friends, one of my oldest friends, Audrey, made me this book, right? And it's a book actually on friendship. And what's fascinating about this book is I have it over 20 years now, and in this book, she's got pictures, she's got quotes. Like, for a lot of you who are maybe a little bit younger than me, you might not remember the AOL Instant Messenger era, right? Like, if you're older than me, just ignore. If you're younger than me, this is how I felt like when people older than me talk about A-Tracks, right? But in the AOL Instant Messenger era, like, we had to go on Yahoo, not even Google, Yahoo. We had to look up, like, lyrics of songs, and then, like, the deeper the lyric, the deeper you were as a person. I don't know how it worked, but that's how it worked, right? So, so she has a bunch of quotes and song lyrics in there. And it's funny because some of these lyrics are amazing, right? Like one of my favorites from a Counting Crows song called Long December, and it says, I can't remember all the times I try to tell myself to hold on to these moments as they pass, right? But then there's also ones from like Emily Dickinson, right? My friends are my estate, meaning that like my friends are literally my, my, my estate. Everything that I own, it's, it's based on friendship. But the reason I love this book is because she not only got the quotes and the pictures and the, the Bible verses, but she got a lot of our friends to simply write about how wonderful I am, you know? This is a, it's like a walking, like, perfect, like, you know, pick-me-up, right? Oh, like, there's a bunch of people just talking about how wonderful I am, you know? I was like, oh, I love you, you know? But that's one of my greatest gifts. But years later, even though I don't read the book every night like you think I might, years later when I see that book or whenever I come across it in my office, I'm reminded that a friend isn't just someone you share memories with isn't just someone you share life with, isn't just someone who encourages you, it's someone who loves you and sees you as God sees you, but inspires you to be better. So we're going to look at friendship in that context. And as we go into the parable, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. It's verses 5 to 8. We'll also have them up here in the front. Um, again, I'll be reading from the, the NIV, Luke 11, 5 to 8, thinking about the significance of friendship and what does that have to do with the kingdom. Starting at verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you are indeed the God who, who makes friends with us, that you are indeed the God of the universe who desires to be our friend, who has sent your son Jesus Christ so that we can come home again, who after we believe has sent us and gifted us the Holy Spirit to transform us so that we can look like you, has gifted us with the, 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 the blessing of the church, not just HBIC, but the church as a whole, the church universal, all of your people in history and all around the world to show us and to point us to you, to inspire us to live for you. But God, as we think about friendship this morning, in a world that's tired, in a world that's overwhelmed, in a world that's lonely, in a world that's isolated, help us to be lights for the kingdom by simply being 
friends. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen? This passage in Luke chapter 11 is actually sandwiched, right? It's sandwiched in between Jesus' teaching on prayer. Why that's important is because, well, I like sandwiches, right? But why that's important is because I don't think it's the main point of what Jesus is trying to teach. But I do think it's important to pull it out and focus on friendship being the kingdom because I think friendship is something our world is missing and something that we can give. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus begins with Luke's version of, of what's become the Lord's Prayer, which, again, is a tricky moniker, right? Because it's not just the only way Jesus prayed. And even in the passages, whether you look at it in Matthew or here in Luke, this is Jesus, again, teaching them how to pray. So what Jesus says, when you pray, when you talk to God, when you have this conversation, I want you to come in knowing that, yes, he's the God of the universe, but he's also our father. And it's beautiful because he doesn't just call him Abba, but he, he, he stresses this idea that he's our father. And I think it's important to hold that a little bit. Because we know that Jesus is God's son, but Jesus in, in friendship and in relationship and because of who he is has made it possible that we can call God ours. That that same relationship that he has with God is the same relationship he invites us into. So we say, our father, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. Sanctified is your name. You are the most holy. You are the most high. You're the most righteous. You are the most loving and yet we call you our father again it's not a singular holding of God it's a communal holding of God because he's all of our father and then he moves on and says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven something we say around here a lot but I think if we're going to pull stuff out of the Lord's prayer that's one thing if you're saying what am I doing on this world today right are you making on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus prayed it, Jesus lived it, and now he commands us to do the same. So it's not about my will. It's about God's will. It's not about my kingdom, or I like to say my fiefdom, which none of us use fiefdom. I only use it when I preach, you know? But none of us really say fiefdom. But it's not about what I can build. It's about what is God building through me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he prays, give us this day our daily bread, right? And in Luke, it's interesting because Luke, not only, maybe it's because he wanted to point to this parable, but in Luke, it focuses on needs. Historically, Jewish people not only remembered getting manna in the desert, they remembered how God would provide for them every day. So this idea of give us our daily bread wasn't just this generic, like, God, I trust you, you will always provide. It's saying, God, I need you today. I need you to not just eat. I need you to survive. And I need you to show up today. And, and so give us our daily bread. And then we get on forgiveness, right? Where it says, and I think this is also interesting because in that culture, right? And I think we need to bring this back. In the old translation, instead of forgive our sins, we used to say, well, forgive our debts, right? And I, I just feel like in this culture where we know something about debt, I think that language needs to come back. Because when you say sin, people are like, but what is sin, you know? And that's a whole fascinating theological discussion. But when you say debt, they know debt. Right? Like, anybody in the room know debt? You guys, maybe you're good, right? But they, we know debt in the society, right? And then that, that actually is the, the ancient Greek has this idea of debt, meaning that when we sin against God, when we fall short, when we don't live as we should, when we break the commands of God, we accrue debt. Debt we can't pay. Debt we can never satisfy. Yet Jesus forgives our debts. And so Jesus then turns it in line. We talked about this with forgiveness. Jesus turns it on us and says, yeah. When others sin against you, they've accrued debt. But if our Father forgives you, you ought to also forgive. If God forgave the debt that you could not pay, you also ought to forgive the debt. Yes, even the debt that the person who hurt you or harmed you cannot pay. Forgive as the Father has forgiven you. 
And then he ends it with this reminder that God provides protection from us. Not just not leading us into temptation, but actually protecting us from the evil one. And that's how he says we are to pray. Knowing that God is our father. Knowing that the kingdom is come on earth as it is in heaven. Knowing that the holy and righteous one is the one who provides for us, the one who forgives us, the one who protects us. And that's the first half. And then in the middle of this teaching on prayer, he, he goes to this parable of the friend at night. But he ends it with, with, with kind of like, it's, 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 it's a small, I don't say, it's not as, as maybe theological, strong as all those different things we just broke down. But why it's significant is because he's going to use this parable to say, man, even y'all know how to be friends. Even y'all know how to do good things. How much more would the God of the universe do good? How much more would the God of the universe bless you with good? How much more would the God of the universe gift you the Holy Spirit? But it's in between is this actual parable. Parable is pretty straightforward, just three or four verses, right? We have a friend who shows up at midnight, and he's in need. Because this friend has had another friend show up at his house, a guest who had been traveling, and he has no food, which in that culture would be unimaginable. So not only is he sleeping at midnight with his family, but someone else shows up, and he's panicked, right? So he has no food, so he doesn't know what else to do, so he goes to another friend, and he asks for three loaves. And when he shows up, you know, and Jesus is almost using this rhetorical thing where he's just like, could you imagine if he shows up in this time of need, and you're just like, nah, I'm good, right? And so this friend shows up. And the response is, you know, leave me alone, right? The door is locked. My kids are asleep. And you have to also understand that most of the people back then probably lived in one-bedroom houses. So if you're awake, there's a good chance the kids are awake too, right? If someone's coming from the outside in this desperate need, there's a good chance everybody's awake anyway. But Jesus is like, can you imagine someone in that desperate need shows up at your door and you're just like, nah, I'm good. Leave me alone. The kids are asleep. The door's locked. I can't get up. I can't give you anything. And so to his audience, they would have been saying, no way. And there would have been two different no ways, right? The first one would be like, I can't imagine that person had no food in their house for the guests, right? And then once they're better to getting over that, they'd be like, I can't imagine they showed up to Hank's house and Hank would rather sleep than help somebody. That Hank, right? So that's what's going on. Jesus is saying, could you even imagine that? And then Jesus has something I think is profound. He says like, but even that person who doesn't want to get up, <laughs> who doesn't want to unlock the door, who doesn't want to give the three loaves, out of shameless audacity, right? Uh, uh, the, the, the idea here does, is it's not just like, oh, they're knocking, knocking. It's out of persistence, which ties into the later verses when Jesus is talking about prayer. He says what? Ask, and it will be given. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find, right? So there's a persistence here, right? In my culture in Liberia, we have this, this phrase called dry face, right? And it's this shameless audacity they're talking about. So my, 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 my five-year-old again, right? It's like, I think I'm in a Zoom meeting. She does not, right? Like, she thinks she needs a snack, right? And it's the shameless audacity of just banging on my head until I get her a snack, right? Like, that's the idea here, right? And Jesus says, because of that shameless audacity, or maybe it's just guilt. I live in central Pennsylvania. Maybe it's just guilt, right? But, like, something's going to motivate you to at least go help that person. And then Jesus says, even that you do. But how much more will God our Father do because our God doesn't need our shameless audacity. He welcomes it. Our God doesn't need us like pounding on his head before he gets our attention, before we get his attention. Our God is always going to love us, always going to give good gifts. But in the background of, of this, this, this whole parable on friendship, I think it's important for us to just look at the culture that Jesus is speaking to. 
that is a culture of hospitality. And that looks a lot different. In our culture, we think hospitality is a gift, right? Like some people are just more hospitable, right? In that culture, if you weren't hospitable, you were a curse. You know, there's a difference here. Like in our culture, we're like, oh, some people are just really nice and they're welcoming. In that culture, if you weren't nice and seen as welcoming, you were cursed. So for them, it was something that everyone was expected to do. It wasn't seen as a spiritual gift. It wasn't seen as something that just a few people are blessed with. It was something that everyone was expected to do. In in fact, in that culture, some of them even had laws of hospitality, right? So you didn't just have the public opinion, meaning that if you knock on the door in a one-room one house, not only is the whole house awake, but there's a good chance your neighbor's awake, and that neighbor's awake, and that neighbor's awake, and they're all looking at you and be like, wow, he has a guest, and he won't even get up and get him food, right? So you had the court of public opinion, but then you also had, like, culture and language, and in some places, laws that demanded hospitality out of you. Why is this? It's because in this area, you had people who were either Bedouin travelers or just wanderers who would go from city to city. You had built into this culture the idea that when you have a guest, it is your job to honor that guest, right? So when you have a guest, no matter when they show up, and in some of our cultures, the guests know this and they take advantage of this, right? In some of our cultures, they show up for a day, they stay for three weeks, but I digress, right? You honor the guests while they're there, right? You don't complain, you just want a pulpit. But you you honor the guests, right? So in those cultures, it was no matter when the person comes, when they show up, it is your job, your duty to honor the guest. And no matter what the need is, right, no matter how awkward it is for you, you have to supersede that and think about how hard it is for them to ask for help. So it's your job to kind of get rid of all that awkwardness. You just, you need to honor them. You need to make them feel at home. Though they were a guest, you need to let them feel like your home is their home. You need to have, and then in that culture and society, they had different rituals. So whether it was like giving you a perfume or, or giving you, you know, water for a bath or, or giving you food or pouring coffee, they all had different rituals because they wanted you as a guest to come into the house and feel like I belong. And to not feel like I'm, 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 I'm like stepping on toes, right? Or to not feel like I'm inconveniencing you, even though you might be inconvenienced, right? But you don't want the person to feel that way. And in that culture, especially in the Arabic side of that culture, they had something called karam, right? Karam wasn't just hospitality, it was generous hospitality. See the difference? Karam wasn't just saying, like, fine, come on in. It's like, oh my gosh, it's 3 a.m., I'm so happy to see you. That's karam, right? And, and, and even to this day, in, in some Jewish and, and some Muslim cultures in the Middle East, right, you will get more in trouble for not being karam, for not being a generous hospitable person than for, say, missing your prayers. I think that's significant because in Muslim cultures, you have to pray five times a day at a certain time. But most Muslims, or at least, at least maybe, maybe not the, 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 the priests and the scholars, right? But most Muslim people culturally consider you being a guest, you being karam, more important than even your prayers. So when we say hospitality matters in this culture, that's the people Jesus is speaking to. And we say that when someone comes to your door, you need to show up. You need to be generous, right? And in some villages in Jesus' time, the, the, the job of honoring the guest wasn't just in who he went to. Everyone was supposed to be karam. Everyone was supposed to honor that guest. So this is who Jesus is speaking to. He's saying to an audience that, like, all of us value hospitality. It's embedded into our culture. We need to make the guests feel at home. We need to make the wanderer feel not like a stranger, but to feel like part of the family. We need to make this person who's desperate in the time of need feel not only heard, but loved. Jesus is laying this out. 
And I think it's important because Jesus understands something that we understand, that we have people with needs in our life. And most of the time, those needs are very inconvenient, right? They're very inconvenient for us. You wake up and it's Monday morning, you got to go to work. That person didn't plan on having their tire go out on the side of the road, right? It's not convenient for you to pull your car over and help them change the tire, right? Like, you woke up this morning and you're just going to lunch. That person didn't wake up and say, you know what, I'm so desperately hungry, I'm going to beg this person to interrupt their lunch. But then there's also people in our lives who, as their needs come up, it might be inconvenient for us. Based on what they're struggling with, right? I have a friend who calls it trauma dumping. You know, she's like, I, I struggle with my job because I feel like people just trauma dump on me. And I made the mistake of asking, what's a trauma dump? And she's like, you know, when you're just having a good day and someone just comes and blah. I was like, oh, thank you. I get it now, right? And, and so for her, that's something that she struggles with. How do I stay mentally healthy when a lot of my, my, a lot of my work, my ministry, my job, are people just dumping on me and having to hold all of this? We have people with needs, inconvenient sometimes. But the message of this parable is that while it's easy for us to be unbothered, the person who looks like Christ must not be that way. We must not be unbothered. We must not say, nah, I'm good. I'm comfortable. I'm sleeping. The door is locked. The kids are sleeping. We must not be unbothered when people come to us in need. And then Jesus also, and I said he ends with this, right, about this idea that, like, you can also do good, but for the wrong reasons. And I think that's important because Jesus sets that up as, like, not the ideal, meaning that Jesus doesn't want us to be guilt-tripped into doing good, but Jesus also don't want us to do good as, like, a, a check, right? It's just like, fine, I'll just help you. Jesus wants us to be generous with our love, generous with our hospitality, generous with our help. Generous with our gift, and yes, generous with our friendship. Because if God is a friend to us in a world that's lonely, maybe more lonelier than ever, that's isolated, maybe at least in the West, more isolated than ever, that's tired, that's overwhelmed, how much more can you impact the kingdom by simply being a friend? I think as kingdom people, we're called to and we're needed to be friends. So if the kingdom is small and goes to big, if the kingdom is about us being people who forgive as God's forgiven us, if the kingdom is about us being faithful as God is faithful, can the kingdom be us being friends to our world like God has been a friend to us? I want to talk a little bit about friendship for the rest of the sermon because I think this is so important. I'm not here this morning preaching about friendship evangelism, right? I think that's phenomenal. There's people who are in, in parts of the world where to be a Christian is an offense that might get you kicked out of a country, that might get you physically harmed, right? So what they set up is something called friendship evangelism where they say, I might not start with the Bible, but I'm going to start by getting to know you. It's a strategy that they're doing because in that world, they can't profess their faith. That's not what I'm asking you to do. We do not live in that setting. I'm not asking them to find a strategy and be like, I will be friends with my neighbor so they can be a Christian, right? I'm just asking you to take a step back. Let the spirit figure out the Christian part. I'm just asking you to be a friend, right? There are other ways to evangelize, but I don't want us going around and be like, I just want to be friends so you can come into the kingdom. It sounds good, but I think our world might throw that off a little bit quicker, right? Because are you authentically trying to get to know them, to connect them, to be there for them? Or are you just using them up so you feel good? 
So you feel like you're accomplishing something, right? I'm not against friendship evangelism in parts of the world where that's the only way you can love people and welcome into the kingdom. I'm just saying that it's not our job to say, I will be your friend so you can be a Christian. Just be a friend and trust that God will work in you and through you to show that person who Jesus is. So it's not friendship evangelism in a sense of, of strategy, but it's friendship that looks like Proverbs. Remember these words from Proverbs, right? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born in a time of adversity. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a sibling. Or Jesus himself who says what? Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down their lives for their friends. And I have always thought like Jesus is obviously talking about himself, but I think he's also talking about us. When we look at our friends, are there safe places where people feel loved, where they feel welcomed, where they feel at home? And if we look at our friendships, are we truly, truly giving all of ourselves for the betterment of one another? Mike Frost, uh, my friend, Lynn Taylor sent me an article this, this week. It's an old article, actually, it's not that old. It's from like last month in January. And in this book, they talked about this idea of the lonely crowd, right? And the book is saying about how churches are really good at being a lonely crowd. A lonely crowd is basically a place where people can gather around tradition and values, right? But they don't really know each other. So if you think about it, like I'm in England next week, I'm going to a lot of sports matches, like sports, football games, soccer games, right? So there's going to be places where there's tons of people all over the place, right? So if you think of like a sports arena, right, mostly they cheer for one team or the other team. The home team probably has like, what, 90% of the crowd, right? So they're united on that cheering for that team. But they don't really know each other, <laughs> you know? Like you might be in Giant Stadium with 100,000 people, and you really only came with two or three people that you know. The other, I don't know, 99,000 plus, you don't really know. But you're united under this common thing of go Giants, which Lord knows we need help, right? Maybe we need 200,000. Maybe that'll help. Score 10 points. I digress. But you're united under that common purpose. And the, the, the whole point that he's making in this article, Mike Frost, who's this Australian theologian, is saying, we as a church have become a lonely crowd. Meaning that we're really good at uniting people around common beliefs. We're really good at uniting people around Jesus. We're really good at uniting people around this is what we believe, this is how we're supposed to live. But we're really bad at making friends. And he's saying it's our lack of genuine friendship is what's killing the church. It's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. And he backs it up with this. One. You've probably heard during this pandemic that people are isolated, correct? You've probably felt it too. You've probably heard during this pandemic that people are overwhelmed, correct? You've probably felt it too. You've probably heard that people are a little bit stressed out. You've probably felt it too. You've probably heard that people feel lack of connection. You've probably felt it too. But in this lonely crowd, he's citing a book by Lieberman that came out in 2013 that was reflecting on, on studies that were done in 1985 and then 2004. So we're talking about 30-plus years ago, 20-plus years ago, and 10-plus years ago that he published it, which means that these stats I'm about to share you are before the pandemic, are before really the rise of social media and the Internet as we use it today, right? The Internet's like our, our lifeblood now, right? Like in 1985, it wasn't, right? And this is how people felt back then. In 2004, it was starting to be, but still not as much as it is today. So these stats I'm sharing about people's loneliness is a baseline study, and it wasn't done by a church, right? Because the, the, the point I think he makes in the article that's also helpful is like, this isn't just a church problem. 
this is an adult problem. Like, as kids, you don't know any better. Like, I love watching my kids at school because I'm just like, wow. Like, everyone thinks my five-year-old's quiet until you get to school, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, she owns all of them. You know, she's a little bit bossy, that one, you know? But it's like, I don't know if they're just bowing at her feet or if they genuinely like her. I'm still figuring that part out, you know? But, like, literally, you get to school, and then you look at the line, and you're just like, this is weird. Like, what's happening, right? Kids know how to make friends, right? We as adults do not. We are really terrible at it. In fact, most of us are like, I don't want to be bothered. I'm good. I got my people. But I think if our world is lonely and isolated and overwhelmed and stressed out and lack of connection, and if even if we feel some of that too, how much more do we need to get better at being friends? Mike Frost in his book said in 1985, people were asked, you know, in the last six months, when you think about the important things about your life, right? How many people have you gone to to share about those important conversations? In 1985, most people answered, I have three or more people that I can share most of my life with, 59%. And of all the respondents, 10% says, in 1985, right? 10% says, I have no one. So one out of 10 in 1985 says, I have no one that when I'm going through this life and struggling with stuff, I have no one to talk to. That's 30 years ago, right? The second part of the survey looks at 2004. So now we're 18, 20 years ago. So <laughs> the most common answer isn't three or more people. In 2004, instead of 59% saying, yeah, I have three or more people, in 2004, 37% is the highest. And 37% said, I have zero people. So just in that two decades, and this is again, before pandemic, before internet surge, before the, the ostracization that we live in today called Facebook, right? Before any of that, really, in 2004, the number one answer was, I have no one to share my life with, to really be my confidant, to walk with me. 37% said that. 37% was the common response of saying zero. And out of all the respondents, the people who says, not only do I have no one to talk to, instead of it now being one out of 10, it was one out of four. So again, the most common answer was, I don't think I have anyone. But then when it says, well, think about it longer, come back again, do you have at least one person to turn to? So instead of it being one out of 10 in 1985, in 2004, it's one out of four. That means before the pandemic, 18 years ago, one out of four of us adults felt like we had no one to share life with. Now I want you to do your own math and bring that up to 2022. I want you to put it in the context of this pandemic we're living in where we feel disjointed and not connected to one another. I want you to bring it up to this pandemic we're living in where people feel as isolated, as ostracized, as overwhelmed, as stressed out, as alone as ever. If it was one out of four then, what's the number now? Is it one out of three? Is it one out of two? Is it truly all of us have felt these things and are in this place. So then my question becomes, how much more do we need to be friends? Because we live in a world where we as adults have abandoned friendship. We can read the parable and be like, man, how dare that person say I'm comfortable, I'm good, when we're doing the same thing to one another. We live in a world where people might come to us for help and maybe we'll help them because that's what you're supposed to do, right? But how much are we genuinely helping them because we love them? We live in a world where we're too good at saying, I'm good, I got me, I got my family, I got my job, I'm okay. 
I think the kingdom will be enhanced by each of us being better friends. And I don't think that's that great of a theological statement. I just think it's the reality of the world we live in today. And so since we're really bad at friendship, I invite you to make a list of what you think makes a good friend. But this is some of the stuff I came up with. And I just looked at my life and my friends, right? The first one is I think we need to become better listeners. We're really bad at it. We're really bad at it. We live in a culture where like someone's talking, you're already thinking about your reaction, right? Or you're dwelling in that one thing they said and you have your rebuttal, right? We need to start just being better listeners. The therapist, God bless them, will tell you active listening, which means that you shut up your mouth, right? You listen with your ears and you actually zero in on what the person is saying. And if you need help, you say, this is what I'm hearing or this is what I say. We need to be active listeners because here's the thing. If we're not listening to one another, we will never feel valued by one another. And listening doesn't involve like saying, hey, I agree with you. It's just listen so the person feels valued and loved. One of the greatest mistakes my wife ever made was buying me noise-canceling earphones, AirPods. Because I already struggled to listen. But then when you put in a noise-canceling one, I definitely don't listen. And, and then, like, our house is a little bit cool, so I always have a beanie on. So not only do I mostly walk around the house some days with air, like, noise-canceling AirPods, I have on a, a, a beanie that covers the AirPods, right? And so she's having full conversations. I'm like, excuse me? That's not good. <laughs> That's not active listening. That's not being a friend. We're working on it, though. We're working on it, right? We're working on it. Now I put the beanie above so she sees the AirPods, so she gives me a warning. Progress, baby steps. But I think it's, it's something that our world needs, right? So if you look at the people in your life, right, do they count on you as someone who listens? Do they go to you even <laughs> with what they're going through? Are you a safe place that they can go and say, this is what I'm dealing with, this is where I am? Do you listen? Because I think if you're not listening, you're not a friend, a true friend who's loving the way God calls us to love. The second one is I think we need to be vulnerable. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow in the church, we seem to think that because we're Christians or we're in the church that we're supposed to have this all together, right? We're supposed to be these perfect people who got it all figured out. And so most of us grew up in a setting. And I think it's fascinating because it doesn't matter if your church is legalistic or anything goes into the kingdom just by your friendship. The third thing I think has got to be important is we have to be intentional about reaching out. A couple weeks ago, I woke up on a Thursday morning. Didn't know it was going to be a tough Thursday. It was a tough Thursday, right? But God knew. And I got a little text message from one of my old roommates in Philadelphia who I hadn't talked to for probably a couple months, right? And it was just three or four lines. And I opened it, and I was like, wow, this is weirdly encouraging. <laughs> you know, like, this isn't like a sappy person. You know, it's not an overly emotive, emotional person. But like, I remember looking at it, and I got teary a little bit. I was like, wow, I don't know what he's going through, but this is, this is good. And then later that day, I got an email from a longtime congregant who was just, again, encouraging, right? And so when I went through the, the difficulty of that day where I found out some, some pretty hard news, right? It was good to know, even just those two messages, that, hey, we're praying for you. We're thinking about you. We are literally lifting you up. Hey, can we catch up soon? We got to reach out. We got to reach out. If there's anything I've learned in the pandemic is that we as a church institution cannot keep up with all of y'all. We can't. 
We're trying, but we can't. That's an honest-to-goodness admission, right? We cannot. But the thing about being a church is that we're not an institution. We're an organism. We're a body, meaning that all of you belong, and all of you need to do the work, too. We, as a staff, maybe, or as a board, even, may not be able to reach out to all of you, but guess what? All of you can reach out to all of you. And that's the work. If you haven't seen someone in a while, say hello. Send them a text. Don't just pray for them between you and God. Tell them you're praying for them. Reach out. Invite them to lunch. And that brings us to this last point about intentionality, right? Establish rhythms that invite friends into your world, into your life. Now, for us as a church, sometimes it looks programmatic, right? We're working on that, right? Sometimes it looks like join this group, you know, or come join small group. And for you, maybe that's what it is, right? Maybe you need to join a small group in the church that you can have organic relationship with. But there's also things you do every day that you can invite people in. For example, we have a bunch of random places in and around Harrisburg that lots of HBIC people live at. And you know who lives in and around you. We also have places that a bunch of HBIC people work at, right? But even outside of that, do you eat lunch every day? Don't eat lunch alone. <laughs> do you eat dinner every day? Don't eat dinner alone, right? I have a friend um, who in high school, his dad started this thing where every Friday night they had pizza. And they were like, I mean, it was like 30 years ago, or probably 20 years, 25 years ago. And so he built this like custom, like outdoor wood fire. Like it's, it's beautiful, right? It's, I, I lived in Philadelphia. Once a month, I would find my way to Central Jersey for this pizza, right? Like friendship. That's why I went for I went for friendship. But what's amazing is that we're now in our late 30s, right? Like he started this when we were teenagers or, or middle school. And even though he has one son in North Carolina, one in Central Jersey, one in Massachusetts, right? He still does this every Friday. And all of us who went through our teenage years know that every Friday night, if you show up at the Hagen's house, there's pizza available. Every Friday night. So, so I, I think this intentionality thing is to truly assess not just the people in your life, but ask, is my life open to actually going and doing life with people around me? Right? And, and so it might be establishing a new rhythm, like every Friday night have pizza at your house, invite whoever, right? Or it might be joining a small group because you're like, this is a way to plug in, to walk with other Christians. It also just might be like, why don't once a week we invite someone else over our house for dinner and just have food together? Or, or why don't like I invite someone I work with, right? I know this is wild for some of us, right? I like who I work with, and I'm always humbled by like people who don't like who they work with. I've never lived in that world, so God bless you. I pray for you. You know, like some of you, this is the scariest thing I've ever said. It's like invite a coworker to lunch. You're like, no, I'm a Christian, but I don't know. <laughs> but I think we need to be intentional. So I don't know what rhythm you have normally that you're already the things you normally do. But I'm just saying, build that in to your walk, right? Maybe you like to go for walks. Find someone who likes to go for a walk, too. <laughs> you know, maybe you like to drink coffee. I think it's personally disgusting. You know, find someone to go to coffee with, right? Don't snicker me. It's disgusting. It really is. Like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, three people. You know, like, there's some of you who are like, you just, you have to train yourself to like it. Yeah, that doesn't sound delicious. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you just have to put some time in. Yeah, no. Put time into your friendships, not coffee. And that's what we'll end with. <laughs> I think this world needs us to be better friends. And I feel like that's the message this morning. And it might be the friend at night who shows up at an inconvenient time, right? It might be the friend at night who has needs that we can't handle, right? And it might just be us too. Because the one thing I think is also important is that 
when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel alone and isolated and lonely, when we need a friend, I think if we've done the work of being friends to other people, then they will reciprocate that too. And we're not just doing this for our own benefit, but I really think, and I really do believe, that if you love the way God loves, if you friend the way God friends, that we can change this world for better. I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're gonna, this is actually kind of funny because uh, I think Pastor Hannah picked the songs. Uh, we're gonna end with What a Friend We Have in Jesus, right? And in that Mike Frost article I referenced, he has this one line at the very end where he says, how can we sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus? without thinking through how in our lives <laughs> we don't look like the friend that Jesus is to us, to our friends. So as we sing this song, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room up front. We love to pray for you for anything you've got going on, you know. Maybe you have to go and ask a coworker to lunch tomorrow. You're terrified. Please come up. We'd love to pray for you for that, right, or anything else you got going on. But as we sing what a friend we have in Jesus, may we be reminded that, yes, God is a friend to us, but are we truly being friends to one another? Let's stand and sing together.
which is something you you say too, I guess, right? Um, is a lady named Teresa of Avila. Um, she is phenomenal on so many levels, right? Like she is this mystic, uh, the Saint John of the Cross, who a lot of people see as this mystic who has the dark night of the soul. Like she discipled him, right? And one of the fascinating things about Teresa of Avila is she's one of the, I think. No, she's not one of. She was the first person that a Catholic pope ever said she's a doctor of the church, right? So there's us normal Christians, right? And then there's like doctors of the church, right? And, and what's fascinating is when she lived, a bunch of men, which this never happens in 2022, right? But a bunch of men are like, I just don't know if you're supposed to speak because you're a woman, right? And she's just like, no, 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 no. This is what God says to me. You're going to hear it today, right? So I love her for that, right? But the other thing I love about her was her deep, deep relationship with God. And that's what she sought for all of the people, right? And she helped not only transform her order of none, but also like the priests. Like when the men finally showed up and started listening to her, they got to be better Christians. Fascinating, I know. But she has this quote that I wanted us to end with this morning. She says this, if Jesus dwells in a person as his friend, that person can endure all things. For Christ helps and strengthens us and never abandons us. He is a true friend. So my charge to us this morning is as Jesus is a friend to us, May we be a friend that people can come with with all things, that we can help and strengthen, that we can never abandon. May we be true to our world, to our friends, as God is true to us. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of friendship. We thank you that we who are enemies are now been drawn near, not only by the, the blood of Christ, but by the love of Christ. We thank you that you have not only drawn us near, you live inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you're all around us through your work in the world, in the world of the, the work of the Christians and the body of Christ all around us. Help us to see and be transformed. But God, we thank you that you're such a good friend to us. You're a friend who so loved us, you made it a, a possible for us to come home again. Lord Jesus, you're a friend who so loved us, that you gave up your life for us. And Holy Spirit, you so love us that you're transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, who's our friend, who blesses us, who holds us, who transforms us, who helps us endure, who strengthens us, who encourages us, we pray that we can be friends to the people in our lives, that when they come knocking at midnight, our door is able to be opened willingly and lovingly, that when they come